Richard Petty, one of the most recognized and admired motorsports figures of all time. I just led to drive a race car. Throughout his career, the King had a record 200 victories, seven championships, and more than 700 top 10 finishes. The son of a NASCAR pioneer, Petty was uninterested in being a driver himself. He wanted to be a mechanic. We could work on something, make it better, make it faster. But after a change of heart at 21 years old, he continued the family legacy and watched his sport transform over the last half century. It's more of a show now than it used to be. It used to be a race. The Hall of Famer has endured serious tragedies on the racetrack, from an accident taking the life of a young boy to the crash that killed his grandson, Adam. If I hadn't been in racing, then Adam probably wouldn't have been in a race car and he probably wouldn't have got killed in a race. Petty continues to influence racing, heading up Petty Motorsports and running his custom car shop, Petty's Garage. We traveled to Level Cross, North Carolina, where Petty spent his childhood as a mechanic for his father's racing team and sat down in the Richard Petty Museum. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. Well, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I'm obviously really excited for the opportunity to you know, sit down with you today. I, I think it's worth starting uh, just with how far you know, you've come and you go back to, you know, your younger days when you were a, a young boy living uh, right around here. How would you describe the area that you grew up in? See, this, this was dairy farm and tobacco farm country. And I was born in this house right up here. And my dad started racing in a reaper shed right here behind. And then just over the years, we, you know, we built a compound with all the racing stuff around it. But uh, we were just country people. Uh, I, you know, I used to go to school, I played football, baseball, basketball. And I come home and work on a race car and other guys go home and milk cows or you know, prime, prime tobacco or whatever it was. So, uh, and, and we didn't think anything about it. It was just, that was just life and uh, we just lived it from there. What do you think your parents most taught you about work ethic early on? <laughs> you didn't, if you didn't work, you didn't eat, that's for sure. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that they ever taught you anything. You just, you followed their program. Uh, you know, when you got up in the morning and everybody went to the field and, uh, you know, you went with them or daddy went to the, worked on the race car. We went and worked on the race car. We went to school. Uh, you know, just, we, we just, as far as we was concerned and still concerned, we're just average people. It's other people. It's different. <laughs> How was tobacco farming early on? Well, that was a lot of work. I was, I mean, people look at the back of the deal and, uh, and don't realize that it's a 12-month operation. By the time, uh, you know, in the spring, you got to start the tobacco bed. And you raise them up till they get so big, then you got to go plow the field and put them in the field. And then once they grow up, you got to sucker them and keep the worms off of them and keep them hoed and all that stuff. And then you go in the field and you prime it all and then you tie it all up and put it in a barn spend all night, that, that's before they had gas and stuff, so you spent the night at the tobacco barn keeping the fire going so that they could uh, dry out the tobacco. And then when you got that done, you took it to the pack house and separated it all, and then you take it to Greensboro or Winston or somewhere to the backer sale and hope you got a good price out of it. And then, then it was all over to do again. So. It, it wasn't an easy job by any means. When did you first learn about electricity and running water? <laughs> you know, uh, I was born in this house right here, 
and then we moved to the next road down, and it was a dirt road, had no electricity, no running water, or anything. So I was probably like 12 or 13 before we had electricity. And we had to have electricity before we could have running water. And I remember our first running water was just put a pump in the well, and we just had cold water in the house, but it was great because we'd never had anything like that. Uh, then I was probably 13 or 14, and we moved back to this house, and my dad put in a, a, a bathroom. Man, you know, we thought we'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, we had a bathroom. But in the meantime, I was like 11 or 12 years old when my dad first started racing. And all of a sudden, we started traveling to Pennsylvania and Tennessee and Ohio. And we've seen people have running water and, uh, you know, had cement driveways and all that stuff. We grew up and it was just dirt and no no grass in the yard or no nothing. You just, that was, just that was all foreign to you. That, you. Yeah, when we went out, it was a real world out there. And, uh, you know, it's like everything else. When we, as we grew up and we got to conveniences, then you can't go backwards. Uh, like I say, we used a, a pot in the bedroom and went out in the woods uh, to use the bathroom when we was up till we was 10 or 12 years old and didn't think anything about it because the neighbors, everybody was doing the same thing. When you didn't have the conveniences, looking back on that period of your life, what do you think you most took away from it and how do you think it shaped you? And what I took away was in the future was Look, look how lucky we are that we're going in the right direction. You look back and, and, and it makes you appreciate it. If you was born with something, no matter what it is, you, I don't think you uh, appreciate it as much as you do if, if you live life and gain it. So we, we gain running water and we gain air conditioning and you know televisions and radios and all that stuff, which we didn't have when we grew up. So we appreciate it more than maybe the next generation. They grew up and they had all that. Mm -hmm. So th then they, they looking for something else. How well do you recall the fire that started in your house when you were a child? I, th I think the first, first thing I really recall was that mother took us out of the house and put us in a car. And I think we sat there, my brother and myself sat in a car and watched the house burn down. Literally and burned down. I mean, it burnt clean to the ground. Everything was wooden, and uh, and uh, the only thing I, I think it was in the second grade. The only thing I was worried about, and and I don't know why, was my school books was getting burned up. And I thought I'd be in trouble because I I destroyed my books. <laughs> How did that end up affecting the quality of life? You know when. The house gets burned to the ground. All the well, belongings in it are the gone. House got burned down. You don't then, have fire insurance. And then we and this was during the war, during the Second World War, and so we moved back to the with grandmother and granddaddy, and at that time, uh, you couldn't. Everything was rationed because of the war, and the only way we was able to build a house was you, you lost a house. So my dad took, uh, he got a, a uh, I think it was 20 foot by eight foot construction trailer, wooden job with a round roof and all that stuff. So he put that up on cement blocks and he went out front and made about a 10 by 20 uh, cement floor and then he built a house around that. 
And uh, again, there was no running water in the thing. There was no indoor plumbing naturally, no telephones, nothing. But then we moved down to grandmother and granddaddy's house back over to there. And this was somewhere in 43 or 44. That, that house that he built, that, uh, tell about that one bedroom that you and your entire family <laughs> well, lived you in. you gotta figure that, that you know, I'm, I'm talking about a, you know, 10 by 20 operation and so I think they took eight foot and made a bedroom out of it, eight by 10, whatever. And my dad and mother and dad's bed went wall to wall. And then we went to the army surplus when we had it. My brother and myself slept in, he was on the bottom deck and I was on the top deck. And there was probably a foot, a foot and a half between the beds. And they went, and like I say, the head and the, and the foot went head to head, and that's, that was all that was in that room. You went in, you went to bed. I mean, they, you couldn't even stand up in it. So uh, then when we moved back over uh, in Grandmother and Granddaddy's house, we had a big room. We could, you know, we'd died and gone to heaven again. We was just floating along, so uh, it made us appreciate the next step in our life. Why do you think being a professional race car driver never even entered your mind as a kid? Well, there wasn't no racing going on when I up, up until I was, you know, like 11, 12 years old. And, uh, but, but even then, you didn't want to be a race car driver. You wanted to be a mechanic. Well, I never thought about the driving part uh, because I was still 10 years behind driving the thing. Um, the deal was just the mechanical part just fascinated me that we could work on something, make it better, make it faster, uh, safer, whatever it was. And so uh, my dad was doing the job. He was winning races and winning championships. We didn't need another driver. We just needed the mechanics. Uh, my brother and myself, my cousin, work on the car to make sure that he could go win the race. <clears throat> so uh, that, that was our, our main surprise. I probably was 17, 18 years old before I even thought about driving a car. And why did you all of a sudden think about it around then? Well, I think uh, I, I grew up with Buddy Baker and Buck Baker. Buck Baker uh, was driving against my dad. Buddy Baker was my age. Mm -hmm. And I think his dad had let him start it when he was 18 and 19. And I asked my dad, I said, you know, why can't I start? He said, <laughs> he said, you'll learn a lot between 18 and 21 years old. He said, you'll grow up. And so being he was the boss man or he, I just followed his food. You, you never thought about when you got to be 19 or 20 coming back and said, ah, come on, can we do it? But the day I got 21, I walked in and said, okay, you know, I'm ready to try this deal. And he said, there's a car over in the corner, get it ready and go. So uh, that, that's, that's where my racing career started, I'm the driving part of it. Your father, Lee Petty, obviously the legend, and you, even as a child, took on a lot of responsibilities uh, with the, you know, his car, his career was really taking off. Talk about your involvement in the race team that early was, that on. Was that was a family business, and my mother kept the books and kept everything straight. My brother and myself and a couple of cousins and stuff, we worked on the car because it was our livelihood. You know, the guys next door was milking cows and uh, plowing fields or working in the back of, like I say, we were working on race cars. So to make make thing, ends meet or so that you had something to eat and a, a roof over your head, you just did what your parents told you to do and you never questioned it. 
and I never thought about being in any other profession or doing anything else because my environment was racing. And I grew up in that environment and didn't look to get out of that environment. I don't know if I enjoyed it or it was just pushed on you so much, you just never thought about doing anything else. How did you work around the NASCAR rule that was implemented suddenly preventing kids from being around the pits? <laughs> you know. You got creative. Well, <laughs> the big deal was that when it first started, uh, you had to be 21 years old to be in the pit. Uh, and you're get, how old at the time? Like, well, you're like early 12, teens. 13 years right. old, 14 years old. Uh, they had a situation, and they didn't have that many officials to check things and everything was just a lot freer and open and uh, except bill france yeah, who's running nascar now only a couple but, years older than you's like running all around trying but, to keep you guys nascar up. nascar had a uh, system every race you got to then the pit crew or my dad would go in and uh, or, and sign in and they'd give him a little card and they called a pit pass and they probably had four or five different colors. So my dad would get a pit pass, and we had a cigar box in the, in the glove box. And when he got through with the pit pass, he'd put it in there. He kept putting them in and putting them in there. And after a period of time, we had all the colors. We'd have two or three red ones, two or three blue ones, two or three green ones. So when we'd get to the racetrack, my dad would go get signed in, he'd come back with the yellow uh, pit pass, we'd open them glove box and we'd give everybody a yellow pit pass because they never checked the numbers or what the d date was or any of that. You just showed them the yellow deal and just drove on in. And uh, remember many times you'd be working on a race car and you'd see one of the officials and stuff coming and you'd slide up under the car and, or get in the car or do something just, just to hide you see them coming. And we'd been running out of pits a bunch of times but is they'd rent us out and they'd come back in, we'd just fall them back in. So you, you, you learn to beat the system, okay? Later on when you both were actually racing in professional races together, why do you think he never eased up on you even <laughs> a little bit? He, was, he came through the depression. He was a hardcore deal. And everything he accomplished was just through hard work. Had a lot of good breaks, don't get me wrong. But he, he worked for it. And he, he expected his boys to do the same thing. Uh, I think the first race that I was ever flagged a winner, he protested. Right. And uh, a famous story. <laughs> what? what well, explain Atlanta, what's going was, on there. It was Atlanta, Georgia? I think they ran a 150 mile race at Lakewood Speedway on the dirt, and it was real dusty and all that. And, and this was 1959. And so when the race was over, the they flagged me the winner. Okay, so, so we was on the racetrack and jumping up and down as kids and thought we'd won a race. And somebody said, somebody's protested. And I said, golly, for what? Well, your dad's protested. <laughs> okay, he protested because he thought they had left him out of lap or somehow they'd messed up on the score. So uh, they, they went ahead and gave him the race. And when, when now his explanation was, you know, when you win a race, I want you to win a race. But if you don't, then I don't want anybody to give you nothing. You, you wrote about this in your autobiography, which I read and really enjoyed. Um, it was pretty frustrating for you, even though you might not have admitted it for a while. Well, yeah, you know, you, you think you've done something, and, you, uh, you, and I hadn't ever won a race up to the end. 
So naturally looking for your first race and stuff. And, uh, but again, it was the times you accepted it and you might've thought about it, but there wasn't nothing you could do about it cause it was history. So you just went on down the road. How did your dad get into moonshining? <laughs> you know, I, I don't really know how he started because this, this had to be back in the uh, late thirties, early, early forties. And uh, my dad had a, had a truck or two and he hauled sand and bricks and, and done all the stuff. And I don't know, somewhere down the line he decided to haul a little liquor on the truck, I guess, <laughs> you know. Hey, but the liquor business kind of indirectly started the well, it racing indirectly business. Indirectly because uh, the, the idea was that he didn't, he, we had a, a 37 Plymouth or something, but he had a straight eight Buick motor with two carburetors and all that, so the car would run fast. So he was mechanical inclined and was racy. They used to race up and down the road for money. People come from Atlanta or Daytona uh, and they'd find a stretch of road somewhere two or three o'clock in the morning and they bet thousands of dollars just who could run the fastest and they'd race each other. So uh, he was a racer. Then all of a sudden he got to be able to do it legally and they really jumped in there. What would happen if they passed a cop in one of those late night races? <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? I, I don't, they never, uh, from what I can pick up, uh, they never got caught and never they, got stopped. They just keep going, they, right? Well, they'd keep on going, that's for dang sure, and the cops sure wasn't gonna catch them. How significant a moment was it the first time your dad went down to Daytona to watch a race? You know, I guess we'd been, it went down 48 or sometime. Um, they had summer races down at Daytona. And, uh, and we'd, we'd had a, I think Daddy had a 40 Plymouth coach. And we drove, we drove to uh, Daytona. And uh, my brother, myself, mother, and Daddy. And first time I'd ever seen the ocean. Probably never been out of Randolph County. Never been to the beach at, uh, in the Carolinas or the mountains or nothing. We just was home people and we stayed there. So you'd only been around your town and all of a yeah, sudden just, you're off in All of a sudden we're going Florida to Florida on the beach. Man, we big shots. Very few people out of Randolph County uh, in 1948, 47, ever went out of Randolph County. You know, you, you, it was just a deal of live and let live. You just made a living and stayed where you was at and just done your own thing. How would you describe what NASCAR was like then when everything was new, the rules were sort of st still being figured out, there wasn't any history per se to fall back on? Well, it, it was just a beginning, okay? It was, a, they planted a seed and uh, all the people involved just kept cultivating the seed, I guess. And, and the tree kept growing and you got what you got now. Right. Uh, that's why I sort of explain it. There was, it was open season. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Uh, the first thing we done when we, they were strictly stock cars, the first thing they did was break wheels. So NASCAR said, well, we can't have this. So they let you put a, a better wheel on the car. Then first thing you know, you break the hubs that hold the wheel. You got to put a bigger hub. Then you break the spindle. Then they put a bigger spindle. And then you break you know, whatever it was. So over a period of time, the cars went from strictly stock that broke things. And every time you'd break something, you'd make a better product. Okay. And today everything's spatial made because stock stuff is just not good enough to run 200 mile an hour and not safe enough. 
So it was just a slow, slow progress to get from one year to the next year, to the next model, to being able to race more. You, I mean, when we first started racing, probably two thirds of the deal was just being around at the end of the race. You didn't race nobody, you just went out and run. And if you finish the race, you're gonna finish pretty good. And then as time progressed, the racing got closer to people racing each other. Now it's all sprint racing. People don't have trouble with the wheels falling off the car or the brakes not working, motor blowing up. They just, it's just a sprint race all the way. So it just took, you know, 65 years to get where we're at. Today, the professional drivers of multiple cars, a team of people, back when you were first starting to race, what happened if you crashed the car you were racing? <laughs> you crashed the car, you took it home, you worked on it and fixed the thing, so you was real, real careful not to tear up no more than you had to. But again, uh, we had one race car, and you, you, the driver most of the time took pretty good care of the thing as much as they could, because if we didn't finish the race, you didn't get paid, and so, and if you tore it up, you didn't have enough money to fix it for the next week. So, so it was just, it was just a survival to begin with. Uh, well, it still is as far as that's concerned. But it's a survival uh, occupation. You got to survive. You got to be there when it's all over in order to get a good paycheck. And I thought it was interesting. You wrote in your book that um, driving or racing was your hobby. Working on cars was yes. actually your job. See, that's, that's what when, uh, basically when I, I quit driving, retired or whatever in 92, uh, the deal was up to that time, like I say, you worked six days a week or seven days, whatever it was, you made appearances for sponsors, uh, you worked on the car, uh, you drove the car, the truck to the racetrack, uh, helped unload it, you done, done all this stuff. And uh, when you got in the car, it was the only time that I felt like I had a little bit of control of my destiny. Uh, even at home where you had a wife and kids and you know, there's so much going on, uh, you, you don't control, you, you think you're controlling stuff, but you don't control a whole lot. When I was in that car, I could run fast, I could stop, I could go, I could do something basically by myself, me and the vehicle. And so, it was just a hobby deal, and it just, I really, really enjoyed driving a race car, whether, whether you won or not, and naturally you, you tried to win, but the big deal was, if there's a car in front of you, let's pass him. Even if you're 15 laps behind, he's 20 laps, or he's leading the race, don't make any difference. You got it, that, that was your challenge. You had to challenge every lap to do a little bit better than what you'd done the lap before, so again, it was just, I just led to drive a race car. Well, and as you said, the last lap's where you make the money anyways. Well, that, that's, that's when it's all about. But you gotta be smart enough or good enough or lucky enough to be in a position mm -hmm. to do the last part of the race as far as uh, payday. I mean, going out and leading the race and stuff, no big deal. You know, that, that it looks good on TV or to your fans or you feel good about it, but it don't pay anything, it pays when See that checker flag? The injuries, um, the tolerance you had for pain must have been extraordinary, but how do you view physical pain? See, the, the strongest thing a person has is his mind. And it's just, it's a mind, it's a mindset deal. 
no matter how bad you was hurt, your job was to get in that race car and do the best you could with it. So between the obligations you had to you and your family and the people that you worked with and your mind, you just went and done it. You didn't think anything about it. If you had a broke leg, you got in the car. If your ribs were broke, you got in the car. If your neck was broke, you got in the car. You know, shoulder broke, they taped the dang thing up and put you in the car and you went. And you, you never thought about not doing it because that was your job. And you wouldn't even take pain or numbing medication. I mean, you can go to the dentist for a cavity and have them drilling on your mouth and you aren't taking any medication. So you do take it to an extreme, but how about- That's, um, that's, that's just teaching my mind, okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you always been able to do that? Yeah, I, I guess for some reason, I, I don't know. It's, uh, again, I'm a real strong believer in mind over matter and, that, and that's what it all is. So uh, from that standpoint, I guess I learned from an early age and when you got an obligation to do, you, you haven't got time to be sick or you haven't got time to, to hurt, you gotta go do the job. The worst rib injury you ever drove with would be what? Well, just when they tear all, all your ribs loose and when the whole, whole thing comes loose. There's nothing that I've ever had hurt me as much as having broke ribs uh, because if you breathe, <laughs> they hurt. If you laugh, they kill you. And you'll be sitting here and they hurt a little bit and, and every time you move, they hurt more. And I, I get, to me, that, that's the worst pain I've ever had, trying to wait for them to get healed back up or kind of hook up. How was it to drive with? <laughs> it was tough. I, I broke them so many times, we finally just took a piece of aluminum and went from here around to here and just bent the thing, just where it fit the ribs, and then we put uh, foam rubber on the inside of that. And then when I'd get in the car, they'd put that on and then just tape the thing up so that when I went in the corner, you had something in the seat to keep you from falling out of the seat. And uh, so what happened when you did that, it spread it over a, a big poop. It spread it from the top of your arm, from the bottom of your arm, to, to your hip, then it didn't really push on your ribs. Okay. So you, you was able to, to do that without without suffering too much. It, it lessened some of the pain as, yeah, well, as best yeah, it just, could. Again, you know, you might take a goodies or a, a shot of Novocaine, but they, they wouldn't last very long, so you just had to go on. Explain why you had half of your stomach removed. <laughs> well, I had ulcers, okay, and, and I think that, that probably started at a younger age when I first started racing around or running around working on race cars. We never, in, in our racing business, it was a 24-hour business. You, you didn't go to work at eight o'clock of the morning, quit at 12 and eat dinner, uh, quit at six and eat supper, and then go home. It didn't work that way. You went and had a job to do and you worked at it. And when we go on a trip, if we went from here to California, the only time we stopped was when the car ran out of gas or the truck ran out of gas. And you'd stop, and if there was a place to eat, you eat. And if they didn't, you'd grab, grab a Coke and a pack of nabs and go on down the road. So we never did anything regular. And by being up 24 hours a day or 36 hours a day or whatever it was, you just went and done it. And you didn't really take care 
of eating the right stuff or whatever. You just, whatever it was, you grabbed it and eat it and went on down the road. And uh, so it finally just, that plus probably uh, the the tension, uh, uh, you know, the, the grind and just being gone and worrying about stuff or whatever, just finally just eat up half of my stomach. So finally had to take it out. Explain the situation in which you broke your neck. <laughs> we was uh, Pocono, uh, Pennsylvania in 1980, I think, somewhere right along there. I'm going in the turn and the wheel brakes and I run up on the guard guardrail and the catch fence and turn the car over and just tear it all to pieces. <clears throat> and Dale Inman, crew chief, he runs down there and wants to know what's going on. I said, I think I broke my neck, but don't know. Okay. So they take me over to- You said it casually well, like yeah, that? Yeah, you just said, you know, my neck's hurting, I think I broke it. I said, okay. So they lay me <laughs> down, they took me to the little hospital down somewhere there in Pennsylvania. And so I'm laying there and my wife's there and we're sort of waiting on the doctor to come in. He comes in with his x-ray and he's looking at the lights and looking at it and he said, when did you have your neck broke before? I said, I didn't know I had it broke before. <laughs> And he, he showed the x-ray where it moved over about an eighth of an inch, one of the vertebrae or something that had a crack in and had calcium around it. And I said, well, probably broke it sometime when I broke something else and it hurt worse. See, your body can only hurt one place at a time. So, you know, then we went from, went from there to Talladega the next week and had a doctor up there in Pennsylvania. He made me a special brace for my neck. And so we went down and I think we qualified the car and started the race and then I got out of the car and put another boy in it. But uh, that, that's what we did. done. How, how dangerous was, was racing oh, God, with that How dangerous it was. If anything had happened, it had probably fell off, you know. But again, that was that was my assignment and that was what I was supposed to do. and and. You know, NASCAR's a little bit stronger on their safety deals than what they used to be. They wouldn't right. even let you at the racetrack if you got a broken neck now. But, uh, I mean, you know, we drove with concussions. How many concussions do you think you've had? You know, <laughs> yeah, no, there's no telling. See, every time you hit your head, you got s some kind of concussion. So you can imagine with all the stuff we had, you probably had eight or ten that was pretty, pretty strong deals. We... We had one in Daytona one year, was running a high rock race, coming off second corner, a bunch of people crashed. And uh, when we do that, then they put you in the a, in a ambulance and they take you and check you all out. And so I get in the ambulance, or so they tell me. I get in the ambulance with two or three other guys. Guys were sitting there and I, they said, I asked them, did anybody get hurt in the wreck? And they said, no, nobody got hurt. So didn't think nothing about it. I go to the infirmary and lay there, and about a half hour after that, I wake up. I don't remember any of that stuff. I was, wow. but I was talking. I was talking to them. Everybody thought everything was okay, but it, it rung my bell so much that I was just unconsciously conscious. I don't know what you'd say. And then all of a sudden, you woke up, and you know that was a big deal. And then. Uh, <laughs> They took me to the hospital, kept me overnight because they knew I had a, didn't know how bad the concussion was. And then they, uh, I think it was on a Friday, and uh, run the race on Sunday. And uh, they wasn't, wasn't wanting to let me out of the hospital because they didn't know how bad it was. And what, definitely wasn't wanting me in the race car, but you know, you just 
go do it. And you got back in the race car and we led the race till we blew the tires. So it was, it was just one of those deals that you just, again, we just done what you had to do. You think you have any lasting side effects from the concussion? I told, I told the guys, I said, probably I'm walking around now with a concussion and don't even know it. Had so many con So I don't know how it'd be if you didn't have a concussion. But yeah, you, you know it's, you know it's got a beat on your head and slow down something. So I don't know if Alzheimer's or something like that, if that would have a startup deal on that, I, I don't know. So far I can remember to get up and, and eat and go to bed, so I'm okay. Tragedy, um, drag race, Georgia, um, you know, you crash and the crash injures, uh, spectators kills an eight-year-old. Um, all these years later, how vividly do you still remember that day? You know, that was in 1965. <clears throat> I was running a drag race somewhere in Georgia. And we get off the line, the car breaks an A-frame or something, and he goes off and kills a little kid that, that's alongside the track. And it was, it took me a long time to get over that because I had a couple of kids, had three kids at the time, you know what I mean? And just, and I wasn't that old either. Uh, it was just one of the deals that, uh, you, you say, why? You know, why me? Why did, why did it all happen? But, you know, when, when stuff like that happens, you learn from it, but you can't live with it. You have to say, that was history. I can't go back. I can't change any of that. It is what it is. And so you, you learn to accept it. Then, you know, later on, uh, I think in 1975, um, my wife's brother was killed in, in a pit set. Uh, Talladega. And we had a tank and the tank blew up. <clears throat> I had a pressure tank, water tank, and uh, the deal blew up. And then in 2000, we lost grandson, Adam Petty, uh, in uh, New Hampshire. So you, you started out, um, the, the kid in Georgia, I didn't know. Okay, but then I knew my brother-in-law. And then all of a sudden, it's my grandson. So it came closer and closer. But all of them sort of fit into a, a pattern of there were tragedies. We were there. We were involved. But we really didn't have anything to do with it. It just, again, it was a fate deal that happened. And, you know, the deal with, at least with Adam, then we were able to get together and go back and build the Victor Junction gang camp for chronicle and seriously ill kids uh, 10 years ago or something. It's been going on. So, you know, out of tragedy for one or for, for a family or a few families, all the other, you know, 21, 22,000 kids that's come through there, it's been a blessing for them. So you look back and say, we lost one deal, but look at all the good things that come out of that. So that that's how I balance a lot. There was a letter that a fan wrote to you after the death of your grandson, is, Adam, passed away. Yeah, some lady sent a letter. You know, it was kind of a deal that, you know, you question yourself. And I mean, it, it really hit hard because I said, if I hadn't been in racing, then Adam probably wouldn't have been in a race car and he probably wouldn't have got killed in a race. The letter said, 
you know, don't put a question mark where God has put a period. And it just, it was just like, it took away the world off of it. I mean, I, I've never had that many uh, occasions to feel relief, I guess was what it was. It was just a deal. Hey, you're not responsible. It, again, it just happened. And it just, just like, like I say, just like took a weight off of me and, and then I could go on and do help with the Victory Junction gang, do, do, do my business like I was supposed to. But for a couple of weeks there, I was, I was pretty down. How much credit uh, do you give to your late wife for all the success that you had <laughs> during your career? You know, it's, it's a funny thing. It, uh, I think we got married when she was 17. Had two kids by the time she was 19, not 21, 22 years old. And the, the deal being, she was young, I was young, we'd never been in that part of our life. And just growing up, not knowing what you're supposed to do, what you wasn't supposed to do. And the, the situation wound up was, she was the homebody. She took care of the house, she took care of the bills, she took all of that kind of deal. I went out and done my racing and did my job. And then it, it was like, I told people it was like three lives. She lived the life, I lived the life, and we lived the life together. So we were married 55 years, we probably lived together 25, which was okay. Because I'd come home, stay two or three days, and couldn't wait to get away and be going, be away two or three days and couldn't wait to get back home. So it, it was just, it was a perfect situation for my situation. Uh, it might not work for anybody else, but it worked for us. I was talking to your daughter, Rebecca, uh, about this last night, and she was saying, in a way, it was kind of tough for your mom because on one hand, you know, she wants to be the wife and be with you on the race weekends, uh, you know, all the time. Yet on the other hand, she knew she needed to be at home job. and be, be the mother. How difficult do you think that was for her? You know, again, we started this real young mm -hmm. and we had no guidance of what was right or wrong or what we needed to do or when we needed to do it. And we just let it develop. In other words, when the situation was this way, we're going this way or this way. We just, I guess we was young enough to know that life was out there. We didn't understand it. And whatever throwed at us, we just do take it and make the best out of it. And she done a heck of a good job with that. And you figured out what worked best for you for, guys. For the whole family. I, I read this, and this cannot be true. When you guys were going on your early dates and you were courting her, were you really picking her up in a car that didn't even have a passenger seat? Yes. <laughs> I had a, had what do you mean? I had, had a 56 Dodge. I all had it all lowered, big wheels and tires. had a... A uh, 57 Oldsmobile motor with three carburetors and no mufflers and all that. And so, it, you know, they come with bench seats. And I got the idea I didn't want the bench seat. I, I went on a, some kind of truck or something that had a bucket seat. So I put the bucket seat in the thing. So I drove around and uh, I took a big rug and stuff and laid laid in the floorboard. So the floorboard wasn't that rough. And, uh, when I'd go pick her up, I'd take a wheel and just put a wheel over there and put a cushion on the thing and we'd <laughs> ride around and go to the drive-in or go go to the ball game or whatever. And uh, 
she'd have to hang on because it wasn't too stable. But that, and that, that's the truth. We did do that. <laughs> What's her reaction the first time she gets in the car and sees that? She was young and innocent, and it didn't make any difference. If I'd have come with a wagon, she'd have been happy just to go out. So she didn't know any better. <laughs> did, did you really give her $100 for a wedding present? Yeah, that we did. Uh, we went to South Carolina, got married when she was 17. She had to be 18 in North Carolina. Anyhow, uh, and uh, I said, okay, I'll give you a wedding present. And she had bought some pots and pans and paying $5 a month on them or some kind of deal. So I give her, a, I said, I'll give you, a, so I give her $100. And uh, she went and paid off the pots and pans. I said, now this is a very conservative lady. This is gonna be great. <laughs> so uh, we still got some of the pots and pans and that was 55, 56 years ago. Do you? What about your 200th victory made it so memorable for you? Well, <laughs> You know, again, my career was sort of going downhill. We'd, we hadn't won but one other race that year. And so we go to Daytona on July the 4th. Uh, president's flying in. He's on the Air Force One. He says, gentlemen, start your engine. So we start the engine. About halfway through the race, uh, he lands. And uh, President Reagan. President Reagan. And we're not, that's the furthest thing from my mind because we're about there racing and it uh, comes down to the end of the race and Kel Yarburn and myself are, are racing and uh, the uh, deal is I'm not thinking about 200, I'm not thinking about anything except how do we beat Kel? And uh, so we come down the last lap and I'm leading, he's running second. So I, knew, I know what he's gonna do. I mean, that's when cars drafted each other and they slingshot pass. So I do everything I can to outwit him, <laughs> which don't work. <laughs> and uh, I've got a plan, he's got a plan. Uh, and uh, I slow him down a little bit for the last eight or 10 laps. We just keep getting a little bit slower, a little bit slower, and he still stays behind me, which I knew, okay. We came around to get to one lap to go or the white flag. There's a car down in the first corner. It's way up in there. He just, some guy runs off the track and turns the car over. So then we race back to the flag. Whoever got back to the flag the first was the winner. And uh, so both of us then run wide open. We go down the back stretch, and right at the end of the back stretch, he pulls out and passes me. And when he does, he's running probably 10 or 15 mile an hour quicker than he's been running. So he turns the steering wheel and he's in a different groove because the car goes in faster. So I'm able to duck down beside of it. And we come down to, to the start finish line with we've got black marks on both sides of the car where we, we're touching each other. And I wind up beating him probably a couple of three feet. And uh, so then when that's over with, uh, they had then told us they'd stop at the, uh, on the racetrack. Instead of going to the winter circle, stop them on the racetrack. The president was up in a press box. So we'd go up and, and uh, get to talk to the president in the press box. And then when we get through there, we take pictures and do the whole deal. And uh, then when the race was over, they uh, took the garage area 
and closed it off. And uh, the drivers, their families, the crews and their families got to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken with the President of the United States on July the 4th on top of that. So it wound up being a, a really a big day for us, I guess a big day for him. I always looked at it. He put us on the front page. We put him in the sports page. So it was a it was a win-win for, for us uh, all the way around. Your last race was Jeff Gordon's first race, uh, and he actually uh, still has that uh, souvenir money clip that you yeah. gave to all of the you know drivers who were competing in your last race. Um, what do you think of Jeff Gordon? Jeff done a heck of a job. You know, if you look back at NASCAR, you've got different leaders at different times uh, bringing the sport forward. Okay, and you know, to begin with, there was an era. Then I came through with an era with Pearson and Allisons and Bakers and Yarburrs. Then he kind of shifted over to a Darrell Waltrip and and then to. Uh, uh, Dale Earnhardt, and then then it shifted to Jeff Gordon. And he was the first really young guy to come in because most of the guys had went through the process of doing the NASCAR sportsman, and they were always 25, 26 years old before they got a first-class ride. He come in, he gets a first-class ride at 20 years old, 21 years old. And so he starts a new trend of younger people coming into the sport. And in doing that, then the face of NASCAR, he changed it from one face to another face. And so again, he's been a really, really big asset to be able to be as personable, uh, to be on late night TV or early morning TV, talked about anybody to anything about all different kinds of subjects, and still be a heck of a race car driver. What would you say is the biggest change that you've noticed in NASCAR over your lifetime in the sport? Technology has been the biggest change. Uh, we're, we used to work here, and everything we did was off of experience and see the bridges. Over a period of time, we got engineers, we got computers, NASCAR's tightened up the rules. Uh, everything's got to be, used to we measure everything in inches, now they measure in thousands. And that, that changes the whole philosophy of what we got can accomplish. And so, if the biggest one deal, you know, I'm like, I'm like Kyle Petty. He says the only thing about racing is today is what it used to be when it started is they throw the green flag when the race starts and they throw a checker when it's over. Everything else is different. And uh, my biggest deal is the money come into it, technology come into it, and it's just, it's more of a, um, a sport, it's more of a show now than it used to be. It used to be a race. Nobody worried about showtime, you know, being correct, English or doing anything. Then it got to come with the TV and with all the publicity. We're, we're in the show business, even though we as Richard Petty Motorsports wants to be in the racing business. Okay, so we, we're in the racing business putting on a show. Your daughter says she most misses the family atmosphere 
that existed earlier on in the sport, you know, when there wasn't the money, when the drivers weren't flying in and out on their private jets, when yeah. they're actually, you know, everybody was together more. No, you know, I mean, you'd go to the race and all the drivers, drivers' wives or girlfriends, they all parked in the infield. They didn't have a space or place for them. Then over a period of time, they finally put them in a place. Then as, as generations change, they're, they don't start with where the generation before started. They start where the generation before ended up. So they go each step. And uh, they didn't have to sleep in the back of the truck uh, to get to California. They fly in a private jet. When they get there, they got a, either a big motel room or they got their own bus. They don't have to associate uh, with the general public if they don't want to. So, you know, that, that part's changed just because uh, the sport has changed. And, and to me, it's grown up. And there's nothing the matter with it. It's just so much different. And the, the Jeff Gordon's didn't go through what I went through. I didn't go through what the Lee Petty's went through. Okay, so each 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 generation's made it easier for the next generation. The last question that I have for you: We had uh, uh, the NASCAR Hall of Fame uh, on their uh, Facebook page asked their fans to submit questions for you, and uh, we wanted to pick out one of the questions to read for you. And it's uh, Ian Spence asks, if you could go back in time to the very first race, back to the future style, what would be the one thing you would tell yourself to do differently? You know, everybody asks, what, what if, what if, what if? If I'd have changed one thing back when I started, everything would be different today, okay? So you look back and you say, I wish I'd have done this, or I wish I'd have done that, but then when it all washes out, would you be in the situation you're in today? So I go back and say, I wouldn't change anything because any, any things I changed would have changed so much other things. I know I'm getting complicated here, but no, I get it. The, the deal of being able here to sit here and sit, talk to you, be here at the museum, I've accomplished all this stuff with all the people that made it, made it happen for me. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to change anything. This has been a real treat. Thank you very much, yes, sir, Richard. Buddy. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening to my interview with Richard Petty. To watch us do donuts in a parking lot and for a tour of his museum, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.